Ever wonder what psychologist moms talk about when we get together? Whether we're consulting one another about a challenging case or one of our own kids, or just leaning on each other when parenting feels hard, because trust me, even when we do this for a living, it's still hard. Joining me each week in these special Thursday shows are two of my closest friends, both moms, both psychologists. They're the people I call when I need a sounding board. These are our unfiltered answers to your parenting questions. We're letting you in on the conversations the three of us usually have behind closed doors. This is Securely Attached, Beyond the Sessions. Hello. Welcome, everybody, to our very first Securely Attached, Beyond the Sessions episode. I am so excited to be bringing you this new series every Thursday to answer your questions with two of my closest friends who also happen to be psychologists and moms, Dr. Emily Upshur and Dr. Rebecca Hirschberg. Emily is a voice that those of you who have been listening to the podcast will know well. Emily is the co-founder of our group practice, Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Westchester, New York, and she's a mom of three. And Rebecca is a clinical psychologist, mom to two boys, and the author of the book, The Tantrum Survival Guide, and just frankly, a brilliant clinician and mom. So to kick us off, we're starting with a question that was submitted from a listener named Jill, who writes, my daughter's 18 months. I think it's time to take away the pacifier. I'm dreading it. Any tips, Dr. Bren? So, ugh, I feel this. I had to deal with this with my kiddos too. Before we get into this, I just want to mention a free resource that might be helpful in relation to this topic. So if you are transitioning out of the pacifier, you might be looking for some new soothing techniques that you can add into your child's sleep routine. I'm sure we're going to cover things like this in this talk. But if that's the case, I want to share my toddler sleep guide, which has seven things that you can try to help you create a more peaceful and easy bedtime routine with your child. So if you want to check that out, just go to drsarahbren.com and click the resources tab. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash resources, and you can get that toddler sleep guide. That might be helpful. Okay, so Emily, Rebecca, let's jump in. On a personal note, I totally remember this transition with my own kids. Emily, I know you have three. Rebecca, you have two. Like, did you guys do this transition? Was it rough? Was it easy? I I will. When I heard that question, I was like, oh, this is, it's a little bit tricky to talk about because I'm not really dogmatic about taking away pacifiers at 18 months, for example. Like there's no age that I think is the time when you should be taking away pacifiers. I had one child who really relied on it for self-regulation and I was okay with that. And, you know, he was more like three Mm -hmm. when we, you know, decided that maybe that was about time. So that's sort of where I, that's where I first go to on all that is like, who's your kid? What do they rely on for self-regulation? I love your point of like, you might need to replace some of that if you take away the pacifier. Um, So yeah, I think I had very three, very different experiences, but I have three very different children. So I think that's sort of uh, where that, where that begins, you know? I think that's so important though, because I have a lot of clients who come to me saying um, that the dentist said it. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I'm always clear, like, I'm not a dentist. And I think, you know, children's minds and hearts are generally much more complicated than their teeth. And I think most dentists would agree with all due respect to dentists. And I just think it may be that there's one way to go as a dentist, 
Um, but there's a lot of different ways you can go as an early childhood psychologist. And um, again, each kid is different. And I think there's also a lot of gray area between kind of use, we talk about using and not using, but there's also, you know, using only at night or using only in the crib or, you know, um, my first child was tremendously reliant on a pacifier, um, Lammy, cause it was one of the wubbanub ones that, you know, had the lamb hanging down. And, um, we took the pacifier away and then a week later he, um, got the flu. And we had been told, like, under no circumstances do you give it back, you know, and mm-hmm. there's just certain hard and fast rules. And I would say, you know, again, he's gotten this far. We And then this poor kid had like 103 fever. And here I am, like early childhood psychologist being like, I'm sorry, I'm giving it back. <laughs> like, he has the flu, you know, like and, and to me, I, it was a, such a helpful learning experience because then we stopped using it a couple months later. And like, that was fine. You know, it's just, I could have easily seen myself forcing myself to stick with it and hearing him shriek and cry and be miserable, but just be like, you know, I read somewhere, you can't give it back. You can't give it, you know, and I'm so glad that I wasn't that way. And I would just encourage other parents. We can absolutely talk about how to do it and how to make it easier. And as you said, Sarah, the things that you can replace it with and the dogma I think is really misplaced. Um, Again, unless there's some horrific dental concern, I just think being hard and fast about it and thinking there's any one right way to go for all kids is just as usual, a real oversimplification. I think that's such a great point. I totally forgot. And that's exactly what it was that there's a lot of dental pressure, but there's just a lot of pressure by age two. You shouldn't have a passive, you know, there's sort of these, like outside pressures that I think we just need to take pause and make sure that they fit with what we want to do. Right. And not be pressured. And I think that's really, really critical. Both of my, two of my three children's teeth were totally messed up just to be clear and resolved completely on their own after I took away the pacifier at a late age for both of them. So I think that's the other piece is like not getting too swept up into the permanency of all these things. And there's no permanent damage, a lot of these things. And, and I, and I had this distinct memory, Rebecca, when you were mentioning that the dental stuff of saying my husband kind of getting really worried about, you know, are they going to have an overbite or so, you know, and I was like, nah, they're going to get braces at some point. My, the, their self-soothing at this stage seems way more important than that. I can live with that. It's, it's exactly what my thought was. So yeah. The other piece I think is important, and I was going to say I'm playing devil's advocate, but I don't actually think, I just think it's another point. I know it comes up on this podcast all the time, is the idea of distress tolerance. And the idea, of, because I've also worked with parents who, you know, on the one hand, kind of want to take the pacifier away. And on the other hand, when their child starts to cry, even the littlest bit, because they're distressed or frustrated, they run for the pacifier. And there's an age at which that becomes no longer healthy for your child, right? It's not three months, it's not six months. Again, I don't think it's any hard and fast cutoff. But around, let's say, between two and a half and four generally (laughs) with the understanding that's a wide age range, you as a parent need to become comfortable with the idea that your child's discomfort 
is really developmentally appropriate and okay and helpful and part of growth. And so being aware as a parent of where your own anxiety is coming into this process and at what point is it about your not being able to tolerate seeing your child uncomfortable which your child needs to be in order to gain coping skills, such as no longer needing a pacifier. So it's always that dance, I think. I love that. Because I think yes. the other thing that I would just add is the thing you said earlier, getting away from this black and white thinking about this, like I'm my children's pacifiers really, aside from infancy and very early childhood, never left their beds. And that was one way that I sort of, we talk, it was just a narrative in our family, right? Oh, the passy stays in the bed, say bye to the passy, you know? And then that, to Rebecca, to your point, I think builds distress tolerance in other areas and not necessarily going quickly to that. So I think there's like many ways you can do this. Like if you're at that, there's no shame. Like if you're at that phase where your child needs this, your passy a lot and it's traveling and it's going and maybe you start by refining it to home or the bed or the car seat, you know, because I think that that can help the dance of trying to make sure you both feel okay and committed to whatever choices you're making. Right. And I think you bring up a good point, which is that it's not all or nothing. Like you don't have to, you can pull the passy cold turkey, um, but you also can phase it out. And that's totally fine to do. And it also helps to give a child some you know, practice at being uncomfortable in a sort of titrated way, like not all at once, all the time. Um, so that's, I think, a good strategy. But like, I think another thing to think about, so we, I, what I think we, we've sort of danced around is like the function of the pacifier. It varies. And then, you know, but typically it starts out, it's a, it's a, it's a mechanism for soothing right? Kids have a sucking reflex. It's regulating to suck when they're born. And, you know, it. we use a lot of times the pacifier in infancy as sometimes as a helpful tool for our own regulation, right? Kind of what Rebecca was talking about. Like, you know, if I, if my child is crying and it's hard for me to tolerate these this, this sound and this distress in my child, if I put the pacifier in their mouth, they calm down. It's a tool. It's one of many tools that we want to be using as a, in, in the aggregate to support our child's soothe, ability to soothe themselves and learn regulation skills. And But it's not the only piece to that, right? We, I, don't, I do think it's important, kind of what you were alluding to, Rebecca, is not to go all passy all the time for every single thing, you know, at the beginning, but use it as a tool. And then, of course, then as they get older, there starts to become more of a, just, it can be a transitional object. It could be something that they have an attachment to as part of their, not just their soothing, but like their kind of bigger structure of like things that help them feel kind of comforted. Um, not just like soothing the regulation system, right? But like, soothing in a more emotional way. Um, and you see this with loveys or pacifiers or other types of things. But like if your child is using something as a soothing mechanism or as a comfort item and you want to help them transition out of reliance on that item, you need to figure out a way to replace that function for them, right? So if 
and that's, I think, what we're talking about, distress tolerance, but also like, you know, what else could be something that your child can use instead? And can you perhaps build up their, their skill in using that item or that tool or that skill outside of the pacifier? Like before you take the pacifier away, you want to shore up their other tools in their toolbox. And, and so that I just think is important to know, like, and I think that can help parents sort of answer that question for their kid. Like, what else can I have? What does my kid already kind of gravitate to, to soothe themselves? Are there things that I can kind of, if they don't have something else that they sleep with or that they use to help comfort them, can we introduce something and help kind of create some sort of thing that they're going to then be able to then use and lean on more once we take away the pacifier. Is that making sense? Yeah, for sure. No. And I think there's, again, there's different things for different kids, but as you said, it could be a lovey, it could be, um, you know, certain physical comfort. You know, I've known families that, you know, a child that they stop using the pacifier at night, they hold mom's hand, you know, falling asleep and then they break of that, you know, it's sort of like a stepwise thing. I mean, I think one thing that's so important when we talk about function, um, is the timing of when to take it away. And I'm always really um, clear with families that, you know, it is a soothing object in whatever way and it's stressful to take that away. And so just to be aware of what the other stressors are at play. So again, you know, not necessarily taking it away right after there's a new sibling or a move or the week that a child's starting a new daycare or preschool or, you know, any, anything that's already going to be challenging your child's emotional capacity is not the time to then also take away the pacifier. And I think regardless of whether you're going cold turkey or cutting back or sort of just considering any of these issues, I think the timing is one of the most critical factors to take into Absolutely. consideration. Yeah, I agree that that's because with my daughter, so my son sort of just not, he liked the passy and then he kind of just lost interest in it on his own. But my daughter was really attached to it. And she's also, I, I nerd, my son also sort of self weaned at like 11 months. He just was like, I'm done. And I was like, oh, I'm so sad about that, but I'm okay. Like whatever you can leave me like that. (laughs) But then I, my daughter like didn't have, she did not self wean. And so she was very interested in the pacifier and I nursed her till she was like two and a half. And I remember being like, okay, I'm ready. I think she's ready. It's time for me. I'm not, I don't want to breastfeed anymore. I'm done. And, and I was very actually dependent on the pacifier to wean her from nursing. And then we did the pacifier after that. But that was, but I spread those things out a bit. And I remember being like, the order of operations here is important. Because my husband and I were talking about, okay, we got to kind of think about a game plan here. And at first we were thinking, okay, let's, we'll cut the pacifier. It was like pacifier, weaning, and potty training were all kind of things that were like, were, they were all needing to be kind of addressed at that similar time in her development. Um, because she was really ready for all three of them. But I was like, we need to do them in a particular order. And hence, so we chose like, first, we're going to wean from breastfeeding. Then we're going to give it some some breathing room. Then we're going to wean from the passy. We're going to give it some breathing room. And then we're going to work on like, you know, really consistently learning how to use the bathroom. And that was 
that took a while. And I remember her like preschool teacher being like, you know, when is she, she seems really ready to potty train. Like, when are we going to, when are we going to sort of work on that diaper stuff? And I was like, we're taking our time because we have other things that we have to do first. And I knew that I didn't want to do them all at the same time. So like, I think to your point, like there's, you, you can do a, a lot of different ways, but think about it. Think about it in terms of what works for you, what works for your kid and, and what other changes are happening. What other different things might be stressors and, and space them out. And know that there's always going to be a limit to your planning, which goes back to my flu example, right? Like we, we planned yeah. and chose the perfect time based on other stressors that we knew about, but we didn't count on his getting the flu, which it turns out was a tremendous stressor. And like, whoops, again, we gave it back. Like, you know, there's things you can plan around and there's things you can, and just knowing the function of the pacifier, which is that, you know, my child really at this particular stage needs this to feel comfortable and safe and to soothe. Once you're clear on that function, it helps you plan more accordingly. Yeah. I'm also thinking like, I'm sure parents are listening to this like, yeah, but, but if we're going to do it, how do we do it? Like what, what do we actually do if we're going to do it or when we're ready to do it? And I think, you know, there's a million different ways you can do this. I, 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 probably don't think we'll go over every possible one, but I do think there's a little bit of like broad strokes thought processes you want to like take into account when you're making your plan. One is like, you want to prepare your child. You want to let them know what's going to happen ahead of time so they can prepare for it. You want to help them understand they might have mixed feelings about this or different, like they might feel excited that this is like a big kid kind of thing to do. They also might really miss it when it's time when their body's wanting it or when they're, when they're wishing they had it and it's not going to be around anymore. So helping them kind of prepare and cope ahead is a good strategy. I also think, um, you know, us understanding that it is a bit of a loss and our kids actually do need to be able to grieve and process that grief a little bit. It's not nothing. Um, but also to like sort of communicate to them and reflect back to them, like our confidence that they can handle this is, this might feel hard sometimes. And you can, you, we know that you can handle hard things. Um, and we'll be here for you when it feels hard. Any other thoughts on like, you know, what to do, what not to do? And why I mean, not? I think that it's so important to be flexible. And I think that that's really, like I say that first, but then I say, I also think it's important to be pretty committed. Um, and so I think having, to your point, preparing them, I love to have a calendar. And then I really do like to, when possible, not have temptation all around. So like go through your house, to gather up the, the, the passies that you can find, you know, put them away and really, quote unquote, get rid of them. Um, cause that both is a process for you, but also for them with the clarity of the boundaries. Of course, there's always going to be times like Rebecca's flu case, you know, where you have to be flexible around that. But I think the more committed you are and the more you feel that you've walked through some of the troubleshooting, how they might react and how they might feel, and you still sort of feel that confidence, that's probably the most critical piece of that. Yeah. And I think as far as the what not to do also, you know, and, and I know there's going to be listeners that have done this with their older child or they have a friend who did this and I don't want to disparage it because it's a fairly common thing and it's not, you know, the equivalent of like locking your child in the closet, you know, <laughs> like it's okay. But there's a whole movement to like poke a hole in the tip of the pacifier or cut the tip off. Like the idea being that you 
that you make it so that it doesn't actually have the same physical comfort or physiological ability to be sucked on, if that makes sense, um, without kind of telling your child that you're doing that. And that has always struck me as just a very kind of deceptive and very sort of not trusting that your child can actually handle it, not bringing your child in. I mean, there's, it's just not the way that I parent. I think it's not the way that any of the three of us would recommend parenting. Again, if you know someone who's done it or if you've done it, I get it. Like, it's not like this horrible, horrible thing, but generally it just doesn't fit with any of the guidelines that we've recommended. Um, it's not helping your child process it. It's not helping your child know that you're on their team. It's confusing. It would potentially have your child feel like they're all alone in this experiences, which is the exact type of thing we in our philosophies and parenting work avoid at, you know, almost all costs. So it's just, that's, that's a pretty hard no for me. Yeah. And I do think like, for me, the reason why I would dissuade parents from doing the poking the hole or the cutting is because it, like you said, it's really confusing for this thing to sort of stop working. And, you know, we want our children to be able to make sense of this experience as much as possible. And, you know, trusting that they can be frustrated and and handle this, you know, I want this and I can't have it versus us kind of sort of the implication being like, you can still have it, but it doesn't really work anymore. And I'm not explaining the why behind that or it just, it's a little bit like, it's very, um, it can feel both confusing and also very dis- disappointing and like dissatisfying. And also like, it just, there's a lot of like, it just feels very strange to a child for that experience to happen without it making sense. I think it's so interesting to use a total kind of inside baseball clinical terms, which is parallel process. Both you and I, Sarah, as we were talking about that experience and what it's like for kids, we couldn't come up with the words and we're like shaking our heads and we're clearly feeling a little bit dysregulated, even trying to explain which is just so interesting because I really do think that's mirroring how a child feels like, uh, wait, what? Like uh, what's up and what's down? You know, so I just yeah. I was struck by that. Yeah. And I, oh. I, I, that was exactly what I was thinking. And as I was hearing you guys talk about this, I was thinking it's about the, like, what message are we sending? Right. It's a very confusing message. And we want to send a clear message of like, you've got that. We know it's hard, but you've got this and we're confident you can do it. Otherwise it's a confusing message. And so thinking about the message we're sending, I think is a, is a way to think about those things. Right. And again, like I feel very strongly in saying like, if you've done this, do not beat yourself up. There's lots of opportunities for you to make less confusing, like messages to your kids later in other ways. And you can even, if they're older, you can go back and be like, you know what? I'm sorry I did that. Like it didn't feel good. And I I don't want you to feel confused about why something is not there anymore. Right. And, you know, repair is always an option, always, no matter what, as you learn new things about parenting and child development, like you just take it in and you move forward. So I just feel like that's an important piece because I don't want people to feel bad if they've done it. Cause it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And now you do all good. Isn't that that Maya Angelou quote or, you know, like I did the best that I could with the information that I had. Yes. Something like that. And like, that's so important in parenting because that's how we keep tough stuff from becoming tougher stuff. Love it. 
Thanks so much. I feel like if people have more questions about these things or in general, they want Rebecca or Emily and me to get together and share our different viewpoints on it because there really isn't a lot of right, right and wrong in our opinions on, on things clearly, um, we will answer them. So send them in and I will we'll talk to you all soon. Thank you so much for listening. As you can hear, parenting is not one size fits all. It's nuanced and it's complicated. So I really hope that this series where we're answering your questions really helps you to cut through some of the noise and find out what works best for you and your unique child. If you have a burning parenting question, something you're struggling to navigate, or a topic you really want us to shed light on or share research about, we want to know. Go to drsarahbrenn.com forward slash question to send in anything that you want Rebecca, Emily, and me to answer in this new series, Securely Attached Beyond the Sessions. That's drsarahbrenn.com forward slash question. And check back for a brand new Securely Attached next Tuesday. And until then, don't be a stranger.